We've been taking a few weeks and going through the book of 2 Peter. The book of 2 Peter is a challenge, only three chapters, but it's written by the apostle Peter. He began to follow the Lord Jesus Christ, was first a follower of John the Baptist, and then he followed Jesus. His brother Andrew brought him to the Lord Jesus and encouraged him to meet him, and he became one of the mouthpieces, if you would, of the early church. He was strong. He was uh, definitive. He was boisterous to some extent. But God used him in a wonderful way. He was someone that the Lord Jesus kept close to him along with James and John in the, in the days that he was on the earth in the three and a half years. He told him in the very last uh, books uh, chapters of the book of John that he would not die a young man. He would die an older man and he would not die on his own terms. He would die with somebody else making those decisions, how? And that he would die in like manner as the Lord Jesus had died. And history tells us he died uh, as a crucified one upside down by his own request. But during his life, God used him as an apostle to the Jewish people primarily. He did learn that God loved the Gentiles with the Samaritans and Philip. He also learned that he loved the Gentiles through Cornelius, who he had to learn that God had called him to not only save the Jews, but also to save the Gentile world. For all of us who are Gentiles, thank God for that. As he was aging now, he knew that his time of going to heaven was at hand. And he sits down and writes the second letter that he would write to the general recipients who would receive this, a general letter. And he writes to them, and in chapter 1, he challenges them to, to deepen their growth and their walk with the Lord. He tells them, put your faith in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, in his power and his promises. He tells them to give diligence, to grow. If you're going to grow, you're going to grow on purpose. It's Jesus that saves us. He does all the saving, and it is grace that helps us grow, but he puts the responsibility on us to do it. He tells them, you give diligence to your faith, and you add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, to knowledge temperance, to temperance. Um, uh, he, he talks about brotherly kindness and ultimately culminating in love. He tells them, if you, if you add these things to your life, number one, you'll be fruitful. You won't just affect your own self. You'll be productive for others and bring others to Jesus Christ. If you add these things to your spiritual life, you'll not only be fruitful, but you'll have vision. You'll be able to see what's going on. You'll have spiritual vision and that you'll be stable and you won't fall. You won't fail in your Christian life. May God help us to take it that, that uh, admonition. So he tells them you have Christian experience. Then he tells them you've got divine revelation. The way we grow in the Lord is growing our relationship with the Bible. What you and I do with the Bible determines what God does with us. Many of us, we only look for our Bible on Sunday morning so that we can save face when we walk in our Sunday school class. You are going to Sunday school, right? Everybody ought to go to Sunday school, to Sunday school, to Sunday school. The mamas and the papas and the boys and the girls, everybody ought to go to Sunday school. But we want to bring our Bible not just to save face when we go to church, but we ought to be a daily partner with us. It ought to be a friend. Someone said about the Bible, the cover is worn and the pages are torn and the places bear traces of tears. 
Yet more precious than gold is the book worn and old that can shatter and scatter my fears. When I prayerfully look in this precious old book, many pleasures and treasures I see. Many trophies of love from the Father above who's nearest and dearest to me. This old book, it's my guide. It's a friend by my side who will lighten and brighten my way and every promise I find soothes and gladdens my mind as I read it and heed it each day. I hope your Bible's your friend. I hope it's a friend that you talk to and you let him talk to you every day. The Bible is God in written form. It's Jesus. To know yourself, you'll need to know God because you're made in his image. To know God, you'll need to, to know Jesus because he's the image of God. To know Jesus, you'll need to know his word. Boy, it's a terrible thing that we know more about sports than we know about Second Peter. It's terrible we know more about hobbies and YouTube and how to get our way around our cell phone, and we know very little about how to get around in the Bible. We can answer questions about how to frame a house or how to fix a, fix a shed or how to fix a lawnmower or give some advice on a classic car, but we do not know the song or the Proverbs, or how to direct someone to know the truths of God's Word. He tells them, listen, you got your Christian experience is important. Your divine revelation from God's important. And then he tells them you're going to have to be careful not to get sidetracked from false prophets who bring a message that's wrong about the source, wrong about the subject, wrong about salvation, wrong about sanctification. He says you got to be careful. The first step to going away from the faith. And the Bible's very clear. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, he said, look, the Spirit of God speaketh expressly that in last times men and women will depart from the faith. Some will depart from the faith. And the first thing they'll do, they'll begin giving heed to seductive spirits, to doctrines of devils, opposite of the Word of God. You start listening to the wrong people saying the wrong thing that does not coincide with the Scriptures. The Bible tells us we ought to hold fast sound doctrine. The word sound has a, a word that means hygiene, clean, pure, right from the word of God. The Bible tells us the word of God are pure words. as silver tried in the furnace of earth, purified seven times. God keeps them and preserves them for us. But he says in chapter 2, you have to be careful because the false teachers are, are sick dogs and dirty hogs. Whatever they are, they're going to return back to their vomit, vomit like a sick dog would, or they can put all kinds of bows and perfumes on them, but if they find a mud hole, if they're a sow, they're going back to the mud hole. So you can be able to share, a, you can tell a false prophet by who they are, what they say, and while they, how they live. But in chapter 3, he brings the reader and the recipients of this letter to the fact that Jesus is coming again. It's easy for Christians to forget that. We know it, but we don't live in the imminent return that Jesus is going to come. We oftentimes, I heard a man named Gilbert Gaylor. He's a good friend of mine with the Lord Jesus now. But he would say, John, he said, great Christians always live with the imminent return of Christ on their mind. Remember years ago when you were a child, and your parents may have gone off to go gro get groceries, and they said, okay, when we come back, we want the dishes done, we want the house vacuumed, and we want the yard mowed, or whatever. And whenever they left, you go, yeah, yeah, we'll get to that in a few minutes. And all of a sudden, a few minutes turns into 45 minutes, an hour, an hour and a half, 
And then all of a sudden you hear the sound of your dad's car coming down the driveway. And you're terrified. You realize that none of the things they ask you to do are done, and you have been living as though they're not coming back. And then they come back, and if you were like my dad, you knew he wasn't a rock star, but he could have been the king of pop. He, he gave me a powwow. He did the powwow, and I did the wowing. Because when he came back, ready or not, he was coming again, and I needed to do it. But you know, the Lord Jesus, if he says anything in the Bible, he says he's coming back again. If you were to get all of the prophets of the Old Testament and in the entire New Testament, they say that one out of every 25 verses in our Bible reference the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. There are maybe nine, ten verses on, um, on certain matters. There's about 70, 80 verses on repentance. There's uh, 20 verses on baptism in the, in the New Testament. But there are hundreds of verses that reference the coming of Jesus Christ. But we don't talk about it. We don't think about it. But God wants us to. And Peter is going to tell them, listen, I'm getting ready to leave this world, but we're supposed to be ready to recognize. Say, what's this world coming to? What we need to ask is who is coming to this world? We want to say, well, what's going on? Everything's going to hell in a handbasket. All these problems going on. You can't watch anything without getting discouraged and overwhelmed. But I say to you, if you're a child of God, you ought to be encouraged. Don't walk around on your poochie lip. I know we got all kinds of issues out there, but you know, if you read the last chapter, last chapter, Jesus wins. <laughs> he is bringing this world down to a, to a juggler knot. He is funneling this world, and the most arrogant fool out there is one day going to bow a knee, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. But rather than ask what this world's coming to, you ought to be thinking about who is coming to this world. One of the motivations of getting the gospel out to the ends of the earth, and if it only 4% of our world lives here in America, that means there's 96% of the world lives somewhere else, and I've said this a thousand times. If you listen to me preach again, I'll probably say it again. That's a 96% chance that you and I ought to do something about the 96% of the world. If you're saved and you're, you're, you've been called out by God, you've been given the truth, it is only right that the rest of the world hears the same thing you heard and I heard. And if you're not going person, go in proxy. If you're not going to be able to leave right now and it's not God's will for you to go someplace else, yes, you ought to go around the corner. No one has an excuse why they can't get the gospel to somebody. Heard a beautiful testimony this week. A man came to our service last week. Here's his story. He said, I, I uh, was living in Peoria, Illinois. I moved to Chicago. He says, I don't know. I used to live in Chicago, and I don't know exactly how it happened, but I was opening my Bible, which I had not opened too much, but I was looking at my Bible, and out of my Bible fell a little gospel track, and it said, 100% sure if you died, you'd go to heaven. First Baptist Church. I thought, I don't know where I picked it up. I don't know how that happened. But I drive for a living, and he lives in the north side of Chicago. He drives for a living. He said, I was <clears throat> on the south side of Chicago. I stopped by Dunkin' Donut. I went to pay for my 
my, my coffee, my donut, and I looked down there, and someone had left a gospel track. This time it said, this could change your life forever. I looked on it, and it said, First Baptist Church of Hammond. He said, well, this is kind of getting weird. This track in my Bible that i never seen, I don't know how I got it. I'm over here at this Dunkin' Donuts in South Chicago, about 30 miles from where I live, and I find it on the counter while I'm paying for my donut and my coffee. And then I said to my Lord when I got in the car, he had gotten saved about a year ago. He'd gotten baptized, but he didn't, he didn't have a church home. He said, to, he said, Lord, this is kind of getting weird. You've got to give me something to tell me this is what I'm supposed to do. And so then I, I pull out in front of the, the road and a bus passed me up and said, Hammond Baptist Schools. And I said, that's it. I'm going to that church. He came last Sunday, was in the visitor welcome. He got a visit this week from one of our friends. And he said, he said man, you're so far from our church. Maybe we ought to help you find a, find a church near you. He goes, are you kidding me with all that going? I'm coming to this church. And he'll start coming next week, I understand. He's out of town this week and helping get things moved. You know what happened? Somebody realized that Jesus was coming and needed to put a gospel track someplace. You never can underestimate the power of a seed. Well, Peter is challenging him and said, hey, listen, the Lord is coming again. And this world as we know it is going to go up in a, in a fervent heat. Every good car that you have, beautiful car, will one day be brought down to, to nothing. It's going to, it's going to dissolve. He's going to use some very scientific terms. I don't know if Peter understood all that whenever he wrote this, but the Holy Spirit did. And the Bible did not come in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Some of the scientific terms there that Peter uses are absolutely blow your mind. He wasn't a scientist, but it's scientifically correct. Even 2,000 years ago. And proof that God is smarter than we are. And he loves us enough to challenge us. I'm going to just give you a couple thoughts in closing tonight, this morning. Would you look, if you would please, to 2 Peter chapter 3. Verse number 1, this second epistle, beloved, I now write unto you in both to do two things, to stir up your pure minds. Here's how, reminding you in the way of remembrance. By the way, is your mind pure? Now, are you ready to be stirred up? Many of us, we are just so apathetic. We come to church, we hear the word of God, we read our devotions, we close our Bible and take on the day, and we're not stirred. We're challenged, but we're not changed. He says, I'm going to write to you the second time and trying to stir you up and reminding you what God wants you to know. Verse number 2 tells us who is the one who brought it to our attention. Verse number 2, that ye may be mindful of the words. Remember the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and other commandments of, of us, the apostles and the Lord of the Lord and Savior. So he said, I want to remind you what the prophets said and what the apostles said. But look at verse 3, read it out loud with me, would you please? Knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days. He says, however, I want to remind you what the word of God says. I want to remind you what the prophets said. I want to remind you what what uh, Isaiah said, and Ezekiel said, and Malachi said, and I'm going to remind you what I said as an apostle of Jesus Christ, and what Paul says, but however, 
You also need to know that there are going to be people on the other side of the aisle, scoffers. And scoffing is often a substitute for substance. Have you ever been in an argument with someone and you, you had the right angle, you had the information, they didn't have the information, so instead of rebutting what you said, they just start laughing at you? Oh, you're such an idiot. Ah. Do you know what he just said? Ha, 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 ha. And they just scoff because they have nothing to say. They, it's a substitute for substance. You see that also in political debates oftentimes. They'll say something and just start laughing. Ah, can you believe he Sometimes when you say something like about God creating the world in six days, they'll say, are you believing? Well, tell me how you explain evolution. Well, a primordial soup blew up, and then we got, okay, now where did you get the primordial soup from? Well, you start asking those questions. Ah, you're so stupid. I'm not going to stoop so low as to be as dumb as you. And they have no substance, so they just laugh and make fun and poke fun. It's, a, it's one of those tactics that it often is used. He said, well, listen, when we talk about the coming of Jesus Christ, you're going to have scoffers. And when the scoffers come, they're going to have three ways in which they're going to attack you. Number one, they're going to attack you, and they're going to reject the coming of Christ based upon lustful endeavors. They're going to be walking after their own lusts, their own desires. Because when you know there's a God in heaven, and you're going to have to answer to him, and he's coming back soon... That hope in us causes us to purify ourselves, even as he is also pure. That forces us to consider cleaning house, making sure my life is right, my mind is pure, my passions are eternal in nature, not temporal. He said, but the scoffers are going to have a problem. They're going to reject it on one basis, particularly, and that's because their interests are all about feeding their own desires. They want to drink, they want to eat, they want to be married, they want to do what they want to do. They're thinking about them, they're not thinking about him. So scoffers are going to come at you with an emotional appeal to say, we got different ways in which we want to live, different endeavors. He said, they won't stop with that. Look at the next verse, verse number four. Would you please, the Bible says this, and saying, here's what they'll say after their own lust, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers slept, all things continue as they were from the beginning. For this they are willingly are ignorant of. I want to just quickly tell you the second thing they're going to say, not only their lustful endeavors, but they're going to say by their logical conclusions. We've heard this for decades. Paul thought he was going to come back. Peter thought he was going to come back. All the great preachers, Whitfield and, and uh, the people we've heard, the Billy Sundays and the D.L. Moody's and the Spurgeons and the Brother Hileses and the Lester, they all talked about it. Where are they now? They're asleep. They're dead. We've heard it. They come to a logical conclusion of their own saying, you know what? We've heard this. Could you imagine a little boy going up to his mom and dad and his dad saying, hey, dad, there's this guy named Noah. He's building an ark. Dad, he really is preaching. When I hear him preach, he's, he's nailing nails and telling us what God's going to do. He says he's going to bring a flood. He's going to flood all of us. And could you imagine that dad going, <laughs> oh, my goodness. Dad, what's so funny? Should we do something about it? Well, you know, son, 
What's so funny is when I was a boy, I went and told my dad that same thing. That guy's been doing that. That fool's been doing that for 120 years now. You know, when I was a little boy, I told my dad, say, he told me his dad told him the same thing. He said, nah, there's no judgment coming. That guy just fell off his rocker. He's just a few French fries short of a Happy Meal. He's crippled too high for crutches. He's just, hey, everybody's saying there's judgment to come and the Lord's coming back. It's not going to happen. They use a logical argument that follows their lustful endeavors. And then I think they just are lethargic and disinterested. They lack any interest. They're willingly ignorant. They don't want to know the truth. They have no idea. They could have the truth stare them in the face. And the Bible tells us, and by the way, it tells us that in meekness, instructing those that oppose themselves, if God prevention would give them repentance, a change of mind, that they would acknowledge what? Truth. Well, I think as we see the political, the political landscape of our, of our nation, it isn't, truth is not important. Opinions are important. I mean, they don't want to know the truth. You can show them the truth and say, right here, look here. It doesn't matter. He said the scoffers are going to do it because they have, a, they have a lustful endeavor. They want to please themselves. It's all about them. You say, Pastor, before we get too excited about them, that's been me too. Sometimes I have not anticipated the coming of Christ because I'm not thinking about it. I'm thinking about me and my investments and my stuff and my plans, and what's going on in the Wilkerson world, rather than what's going on in God's world. And it's also because of the logical conclusion. Look, look, it's just, they've been saying it for decades, and nothing's happened. We've been reading the same Bible for 2,000 years, and everybody's waiting, and it's not come yet. And they use the argument of time, and then they say they're willingly ignorant. They're just, they have, they have a very lethargic interest in getting involved in that. Let's look what the Bible says. So let's continue on. And you're going to see that a Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God, challenged them that you ought to receive the coming of Christ. We'll give the what for tonight. I can't wait tonight's message. If you can only come this morning or tonight, let me encourage you to come tonight. Okay, don't, don't, don't. if you have a choice, just go ahead and come tonight. In verse number five, they said, but this they are willingly ignorant of. By the word of God, and the heavens were old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world that then was being overflowed with water perished. He's going to reference the flood, a cataclysmic event. The world that was was created by God. It was corrupted by sin. It was condemned by a flood. You're going to see three references, the world that was, the world that is now, and the world that will be. He says, you know, he said, you're willingly ignorant. You know, by the way, the, the evolutionists have their thoughts, and I think evolution's a fairy tale with a magic wand is millions and millions of years. If you can say enough millions, everybody thinks, oh, yeah, well, sure, you know. No. They also have to reject a flood. Now, God tells us he made everything, and then he destroyed everything with water. And Peter is going back to the basics. By the way, never get bored with the basics. 
He said, listen, when you folks are willingly ignorant of creation that God made, he created it. It was corrupted by sin. Men did that which is evil in their hearts continually. Then he brought condemnation through a flood. He said, now let's look what the, what the world is now. Look at the next verse, if you would, please. Verse 7. And the heavens and the earth, which are now, by the same word, the same word that created the world and condemned the world, the same word are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. But beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. Let me just quickly, I need to, I need to land this plane. Hope I don't crash it. But here he says, he says, listen, this world that was, was corrupted by sin and condemned by a flood. The world that now is, we have a window of opportunity to believe and receive Jesus Christ or to reject him. And if we believe and receive him, it's to serve him and to please him. I had somebody the other day tell me, you know what, I just think you're just too strict, Pastor Wilkerson. You're too strict. You know, I don't know about that. That's opinion. I'm one of the happiest men on the planet, in my opinion. I kind of like living holy, separated. But I don't do that so I can get to heaven. That's legalism. But I do that not to just to appease God, but to please him. A lot of things I don't do, and maybe things you shouldn't do. Things you could do would be allowable, but it wouldn't be pleasing to the Lord. When I, when I deal with my children, there's a lot of things I, I suggest here, I think you ought to do this. Some things I say, this is what you're going to do. It's right and wrong. Other things I say, I think you might want to consider this. And sometimes they, they do it, and sometimes they don't. Sometimes they're willing to appease me. Dad's not upset, is he? And sometimes they want to just please me. Whatever Dad says, I'll just do it. Because I love him, he loves me. That's the kind of way we ought to be with our Heavenly Father. We ought to try to just please him. Not just to keep him from getting frustrated with us, but make him gloriously happy, delighted taking the high road of holiness. He said, now, but he said, everything that you see now is reserved for punishment, not with water, but with fire. Just a few years, a few blocks, excuse me, a few miles from this very spot in Chicago, December the 5th, 1942, they came up with nuclear vision right here in Chicago in the basement of that stadium. A few years later, they blew it up and tried it out over in Alamore, I think, uh, New Mexico. A few months later, they dropped it on Hiroshima. Now they've learned all kinds of things to try to keep the radiation and blowing huge holes in the ground, turning the sands of New Mexico into glass crystals, all with a huge bomb. But let me tell you something. There's another way, and it's called the judgment of God. It's reserved with fire, and someday everything we have, and the Bible's going to tell us in a few moments here and tonight in our message that it's going to melt with a fervent heat. And the only thing that's going to make it out of that is you and me if we have our faith in Jesus Christ. So glad that God loves us. And people say, well, it's going to come. He said, let's remember this, that a day is with the Lord is a thousand years and a thousand years a day. God does not look at, at eternity in frames. This is this century, this is this day, this is this month. He looks at it all in one frame. He knows yes, tomorrow better than you can remember yesterday. 
He doesn't have to wonder what hap- what's going to happen tomorrow. He already is there. And he's not in a hurry. Everything is coming right down exactly what he's got going. He doesn't leave the same, this time the same way. And then he says, but I'll tell you why that we're not already perished. He tells the people, Peter says, number one, Jesus is coming again because he promised it. He's going to bring judgment because he has power to do it. But he's patient. Verse number nine, the Bible says, God is not slack concerning his promise of coming again and dealing with this planet. But he is long-suffering. He's patient with you and me, not wanting any of us to perish and go to the lake of fire but that all would come to repentance. We heard the story of our, of our sergeant here. And he said, why? I don't know why. This, today he found out why. Because God loved him. And he wasn't willing that Joseph Nald or anyone else go into eternity without God, but that all would come to repentance, a change of heart and mind. Let me ask you, How do you think someone gets to heaven from here? How can someone be reconciled to God? Do you have an opinion? Let me tell you what God's opinion. It is by putting their faith in Jesus and only him to save us. Not in baptism, not in church membership, not in a pastor, not in a priest, not in a confession, not in a creed, not in sacraments, in Jesus. He is eternal life. Do you believe that? If you don't believe that, you need to repent. Say, Pastor, how dare you? I'm asking you to change your mind. Jesus said, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No man, you'll not be the exception. I don't care if you served in our military or didn't. I don't care if you're a good person or you're an honorary person. Everybody who goes to heaven, everyone that has eternal life must go through the person of Jesus. You either go into eternity with your sin before a holy God and a judge of all the universe, or you go into eternity with his son. With your sin, separated from God. With his son, justified without sin. Make sure you're saved.